For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. On the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, we have two conclusions. First of all, the attack on the Capitol was the beginning, not the end, of a violent movement to overthrow democracy in America. And second, the Republicans are working to steal the 2024 presidential election if their candidate doesn't win. And they're well on their way to passing the state laws that would allow them to do that. The best defense we have right now is the Democrats' voting reform bills, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. In his new book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis, will be published later this month. Hi, John. Hey, John, it's great to be with you. Well, the Freedom to Vote Act would expand voter registration and mail-in voting and end partisan gerrymandering. We also want to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to restore part of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that gives the Department of Justice the authority to veto new voting rules in states with a history of discrimination. Both of those bills are awaiting action in the Senate. The Republicans' filibuster has blocked them. Chuck Schumer finally, after a year, said a couple of days ago, the Senate will debate and consider changing the Senate filibuster rules on or before January 17th, Martin Luther King Day. So where do we stand on changing the filibuster? Is it going to happen on or before January 17th? Well, let's begin with with an understanding that the term the fierce urgency of now (laughs) has not exactly uh overwhelmed the members of the united states senate Uh, i am am shaking my head in in dismayed agreement yeah it's just it's sort of surreal you're like wow this is a crisis it's a really really bad thing democracy itself is at stake and so in a couple weeks if we don't see some action we might do something that's kind of where we're at I don't want to beat up on Schumer too much. I, I've interviewed him a couple of times about this, and I, I know the dance that he believes he is involved in with, with Joe Manchin. And that is that, you know, you give Manchin a lot of time, a lot of space, uh, a lot of clarity that no Republican is going to do the right thing. And then you kind of put Manchin in a position where theoretically he might do what he has said he would do, which is back some protections for voting rights. But then you have the problem of Kirsten Sinema, who is more militantly opposed to altering the filibuster rules than Manchin is. And so we are still a good distance from where we need to be. Now, uh, in fairness to Schumer, while I criticize him for not being urgent enough on this and, and for not really kind of getting to this point on January 17th of 2000 and 21, not 2022. That's when 
that's when they should have, you know, right at that critical moment after the attack on the Capitol, you know, in the moment of impeachment, that's when they should have locked in, you know, used their majorities to lock in some voting rights reforms, which then a, a newly inaugurated President Biden could have signed on his first day in office. But they didn't do that. So now we're here. And one hopes that Schumer is using these couple of weeks to really kind of work cinema. And I think cinema is the most important one on this one to get her across the line so that she will uh, allow for a carve out on voting rights on this. But I've read that it's not just Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema who are holding this up. How many of the 50 votes are assured votes for changing the filibuster rules? Well, you open up the real can of worms there, John, because throughout this last year, Manchin and Cinema have served as sort of placeholders for a group of senior Democratic senators, uh, all of them, as best I can tell, uh, you know, folks who've been around for a while, at least a term or so, who are not particularly enthusiastic about altering the filibuster. That's that's a, a baseline reality. Most of them, I think, are sympathetic to voting rights. I don't, I don't think that's really the problem per se, but uh, they, they operate on a very kind of old-fashioned sensibility about the Senate in most cases. And then there's a couple who are afraid that if they alter the filibuster, it will become an issue in their re-election runs in 2022. I'd say there's about six of them. I think the senators from New Hampshire are a little bit shaky. I think John Tester from out in Montana is somebody that people keep an eye on. Uh, although he's actually stood up and said and done some pretty good stuff. The two senators from Delaware who are very loyal to Biden have often been uh, very resistant to filibuster reform over, over the years. So you got a group there. But as I run down it, John, I, I kind of default to the position that uh, if Manchin and Cinema can be moved, then the others will come. None of them seem to me to be the kind of person who would say, oh, You've settled it all. It's all the pieces are in place. Now I'm going to throw a wrench into the machine. (laughs) One more thing. So the Senate rules have always said that a simple majority can change the rules, including the rule on the filibuster. Has this ever happened before? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of history on it. And remember, we used to, in the lifetimes of some living Americans, have a system on the filibuster where you had to get up and stand there and talk forever. You know, Strom Thurmond did it on, you know, defending, you know, states' rights and and segregation and everything horrible. So uh, there was a a change of the rules to make it easier for bad players to kind of filibuster without actually uh, filibustering. And so, yeah, the history is full of it, uh, full full of examples of this. This can be done. It's not even that big a deal. Uh, especially uh, if you do a carve out, you know, if you just say, well, we're just going to do it on on voting rights. Uh, But I will tell you that the carve out is fraught with a certain amount of peril. And that is that if they do a carve out on voting rights, I think they are going to face pressure from people who say, you know, come on, you can't do it on racial justice and reform of policing. You can't do it on labor rights, the PRO Act. You can't do it on. So, you know, I, I think that that's where, uh, while it's easy to do a carve out, uh, it does also open up, you know, the the next levels of pressure on on a host of issues. So we've posited defending voting rights as the most immediate way 
to protect ourselves against the changes that January 6th inaugurated in American political life. What do we know about the larger question of public opinion on what January 6th meant and what it was about? How many people actually believe American democracy is under threat? A lot of people believe it's under threat, John. In fact, uh, the numbers are, you know, roughly two thirds of folks, according to some recent polling, will say that, yeah, they, they think that there's a real danger and they think that after the next presidential election, you could have violence. You know, that's that's a lot of people believe that. There's also a shockingly large number of people who believe that's okay, And that's sort of the two sides of this coin. The clear majority of Americans do see a threat to democracy. Maybe not all of them think that that Republicans are the threat. There may even be some folks who poll and say there's a threat coming from the Democrats. But the bottom line is there's a lot of people who see an instability. And then um, there is a, you know, a, a portion and polls are a little bit variable on this, but there are certainly in the double digits and, and perhaps into the relatively high double digits of people who think that violence is either appropriate or somehow acceptable in these circumstances. These tend to generally be uh, very conservative Republicans. But uh, yeah, we're in, a, we're in an incredibly unstable point. And I think that, that the truth, John, is that the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress really blew January 6th. They didn't blow it on, on uh, impeachment. They were right to move rapidly for impeachment. They should have moved more rapidly. They should have done the, the impeachment when they did in the House, and then they should have done the trial before Trump finished his presidency. They should have just moved immediately on that issue. They didn't. But then the deeper problem is they didn't hold their own to account. Now we have this House Special Committee investigating that event and producing a lot of extremely important information about who was responsible for what that day. What, uh, what has that committee achieved so far? How do you evaluate their work? They have achieved some significant things, but they have done it in such a plotting way, such a slow way, that they have uh, kind of sucked the urgency out of a lot of this. And that's, that's really problematic. Again, that committee should have been constituted back in January of last year. The revelations that they're getting should have been gotten last year, not now on the one-year anniversary. Uh, that has allowed for a lot of misinformation to fill the void, a lot of disinformation to fill the void. And they continue to send mixed signals about how much power they have to uh, extract accountability once they find out about things. At this point, I, I hate to say it, but it seems to me that the committee is more of a record-keeping endeavor than it is an actual accountability endeavor. They're getting the information. It's profound. It is significant. It clearly points to wrongdoing, not merely by members of the Trump administration and President Trump himself, but also by members of Congress. And so this is a big, big deal. Uh, but the question of whether they'll actually act on it is still very much up for grabs. And what that means, I think we're uncertain about. Well, now we need to talk about the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which you have written about in a new piece that went up at the nation.com. Tell us about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Well, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, written after the Civil War, is very, very explicit. It says that if you engaged in insurrection or if you gave aid and comfort to those who engaged in insurrection, you, if you're an official who swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, cannot hold public office anymore. You're out. 
Well, in the aftermath of the Civil War, there was some application of it. But since then, you know, the 14th Amendment, that section, Section 3, has pretty much been kind of like read over. It, it hasn't been applied. But thankfully, there is a new member of Congress, Cory Bush uh, from Missouri, who actually read the Constitution and said, you know what, I swore an oath to this thing. I think I'm going to actually try to apply it. <laughs> and she has proposed that uh, when it there's evidence uh, that members of Congress engaged with the insurrectionists directly, and there's been some evidence pointing to that, uh, or gave aid and comfort to them, that the Ethics Committee should consider appropriate actions up to and including expulsion for Congress. It's a and completely appropriate action. How much support is there in Congress right now supporting Cory Bush's proposal that members who supported the insurrection should be expelled? Uh, 54 members of the House have signed on as co-sponsors, uh, including a, a number of prominent members. So it's a, it's, a good, it's a good basic list, but it's certainly not enough to get to where you need action on it. Uh, Cory Bush has suggested that a great way to commemorate January 6th would be to pass uh, her resolution calling for the Ethics Committee to step up and start doing this. There's clearly resistance on the part of House leadership, uh, including Democrats in House leadership. Obviously, the Republicans are resistant. Um, but it's interesting also that this isn't just about the House. In the Senate, several members of the Senate have stepped up and said that um, their colleagues should be expelled if they, you know, if the evidence is there to to show that they engaged with the insurrection. Uh, Sherrod Brown, Sheldon Whitehouse, and others have been very specific on this, even naming names. And so there's there's a reality there. I mean, it's it's something genuine, but it hasn't gone up into the leadership ranks. And I think this is a real crisis. You can have President Biden and Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi and others speak to the end of the day and for every day going forward about how what happened on January 6th was, was horrific. It was an assault on democracy. It was deadly and awful and dangerous and bad and all these things. They can you know, find whatever words they want to use. But if there isn't any accountability, if we didn't impeach Trump, or we did impeach Trump, but if we didn't you know, convict him, if we don't expel members of Congress who engage with this, then really it's, it's talk. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's an expression of concern, an expression of frustration, but it's not action. And until there is action on what happened on January 6th, I think the possibility that on January 6th, 2025, we are talking about a much more serious circumstance remains quite real. And uh, accountability drives change. Without accountability, uh, you very likely stay on the same pattern and end up in a potentially worse place. John Nichols, readamitthenation.com. John, always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.